Today's guest is Ben Lenth, Executive Director of San Isabel Land Protection Trust. Before coming to Westcliff, he worked in the Peace Corps in Central Mexico and has worked on ecological and natural resource issues in Colorado and Washington State. Ben joined uh, San Isabel in 2009 as Land Protection Specialist and in 2012 was promoted to Executive Director. Ben, welcome. Thank you, Gary. appreciate the invitation. So in a nutshell, what's the basic charge of San Isabel for our listeners? Sure. San Isabel Land Protection Trust, well, we were founded about 21 years ago now in response to rapid growth in Custer County, but really we're focusing on protecting what is special about this landscape and community. So we focus on working with private landowners to protect their lands, whether they are working ranches, forested properties, or otherwise, um, focusing on really the quality of life, what brings people to Custer County and the Wet Mountain Valley, the wide open spaces, the wildlife that's free to roam, the working ranches that are part of our heritage here. And so uh, our charter is really to try to keep this valley open and beautiful and protect what makes it special. So what do you see as the future for this valley from your perspective? It's a good question, Gary, and I have to believe that we're going to see more growth. Uh, in the last while, what, when the Land Trust was founded 20 years ago, we were having a lot of rapid subdivision, and that created a lot of vacant parcels to date. But today, we're not seeing quite as uh, quick a pace of development, but we're really worried about the water, the water resources being really what allows agricultural lands to be productive and provides all these additional benefits of wildlife habitat, of ecosystem services, which we can get into. But the future, I, I have to believe that we're going to see growth. If the state is supposed to double its population in the next 20 or 30 years, people aren't moving as much directly to Westcliff or Custer County. But uh, over time, we have to believe that we will have growth, and so part of what we want to see is how to grow smart, how to how to grow in a way that doesn't compromise the, the natural beauty and, and values of this place. But within that as well, uh, we envision a you know landscape of protected lands, of productive ranches, of a lot of the same things you see here, but built into that more recreational opportunities for one thing, a lot of the future of Colorado, I think, includes connected trail corridors, connecting towns. And so what we hope to see is that growth is centered in town or in the towns of Westcliff and Silvercliff, and that uh, some of the, the amenities of development are available there, thus talking about trails and parks and that sort of thing. But we expect there to be growth, and development will tend to follow highways, will follow development uh, growth areas. Uh, but we want to do it smartly. So getting out in front of that growth with a plan is really useful. You're, you guys are well positioned to do that. I know uh, Denver is very tight in the housing market. It's moved to Colorado Springs. It's moved to uh, Slida, which is only an hour away. It, uh, if you connect the dots, uh, one could see over a few years where there could be more pressure in this valley. I would certainly think so. And so it's not, the land trust position is not to try to respond uh, as much to a certain uh, type of development that we don't want, but we want to focus on what we do. And thus, keeping particularly the big ranches, the well-irrigated places, intact, productive, in family hands, really remains our goal. 
So let me ask a bit about the landscape within Colorado of the of the land trusts. Uh, how many organizations are there with a similar focus to San Isabel in Colorado? There are about 30 land trusts as nonprofit organizations dedicated to private land conservation. Uh, fewer than that are, are really thriving. Um, we have a number of national and statewide land trusts that are active, and then a number of local and regional land trusts similar to San Isabel. Additionally, there are agencies within the state and municipal and local governments that do similar work that have open space programs. Uh, but overall, it's a pretty small world, organizationally wise. Um, there are probably 30-something to 40 organizations active in this kind of work. And I've heard several people speculate that over time the, that 30 organizations will go to uh, a number that's probably far less than that. What, what would you say is the, makes the difference for being successful versus struggling? Is it, is it geography? Is it personnel? Is it strategy? That's a good question, Gary. There's a, there are a lot of factors that could make a community conservation organization such as Elantra successful. The community that's located in, these are generally grassroots movements and organizations. And so, for example, with San Isabel, we were founded in 1995, and the community had been organizing for several years before that to figure out the uh, the way to respond in a uh, to balance the conservation of land use with development. The ability of the land trust to to thrive and survive really depends on its relevance to each of those communities. And thus, you know, we very much want to hear from our community and invite that feedback. Uh, and in our case, you know, we're, we're diversifying how we serve the community. So in addition to our, our ranch land preservation focus, um, that extends into water issues where we're trying to be more active on um, healthy watershed and sort of a water security sort of conversation. We also now own the Bluff Park here in West Cliff, which gives us another role to play in the community, which really uh, is part of a, a parks and trails initiative that we believe can help make the town more livable and thus keep people uh, desiring to live in town rather than in the countryside, generally speaking. We see that being important to our mission, that town is the desired place to live. Part of your question, you know, how do we have so many little nonprofits that are doing similar work around the state, really also speaks to the, the task that we're taking on, which is a perpetual task. The, the primary tool we use is a conservation easement. These are perpetual documents. And it's audacious to say a little startup or volunteer-run nonprofit is going to be around forever. And so we take that very seriously. At San Isabel, we have essentially an, a, a type of endowment set aside to to take care of all of our conservation easement holdings, which to date are just over 40,000 acres and about 130 projects. It's our job to uphold those contracts. And so we've consciously taken our stewardship endowment, which is what we call that fund, and decided not to spend it really at all, uh, at least on staff time. So. When land is protected, we celebrate a closing of a new conservation easement, say we've protected this amount, but really that's when the work is just beginning. And then we have this perpetual obligation to maintain relationships with landowners, to, to monitor the activities as much as they are outlined in these, in these conservation easements, and then maintain a legal fund for when things go wrong. So we take that long-term commitment very seriously, and yet... 
it's a balance financially between you know putting all of our money away for the long term and continuing to generate a, a viable organization that's really responding to the community's needs. So uh, conservation easements are historically the heart of what you do. Can you give us that process? Sure, sure. And like you said, it, I think it, for a long time, conservation easements were synonymous with the land trust. And we recognize now that's just one tool, the strongest tool. So a conservation easement is a voluntary contract entered into by a private landowner with the nonprofit land trust that fundamentally conveys a set of development rights to the land trust. Um, typically, those are the right to subdivide. Uh, if, if a ranch has water rights, included is the right to sell that water permanently, thus prevent dry up. Um, and then sort of limitations on generally industrial uses. We try to keep these agreements as flexible as possible. Um, but when it works best is when nothing changes. If a landowner has a, a property that you know is providing a certain public benefit, whether it's food production, wildlife habitat, scenic beauty, all these things, then they would qualify to donate this set of development rights through a conservation easement to the land trust, and those those rights fundamentally go away forever. They they're held in trust by the land trust, but we have no right to to use them. So. When done right, like I said, nothing changes. The right to subdivide or to put a Walmart on the back 40 are, are moot. They're things that nobody, or rather the landowner, wouldn't want to exercise anyway. So through that conveyance of a, a subset of the rights associated with a piece of land, we're able to provide income through either a variety of tax benefits or direct purchase revenue. Uh, we're able to compensate the landowner for, for that permanent protection of their land. Let me ask, I can understand the the benefit for the ranch owners and uh, but how about for those who who don't uh, own big pieces of property who are just members of the community, perhaps they live in town. What's in it for them from your perspective? Sure. Sure, Gary. Yeah, the the public benefits of private land conservation are probably not as well understood as they should be and you know, for the the public that are taxpayers and are seeing some of their tax dollars go to this work, need to know that there are a variety of public benefits. And it's important to note that lands under conservation easement are not open to the public, unless explicitly stated. There's there's nothing in a conservation easement that confers public access inherently. So the question being then, why would the public care about this? So to start with, private lands are disproportionately important to us. When you look at how the state of Colorado developed, the places people wanted to move, which is where you could grow food and live and divert water and build cities, are all in the valleys of rivers and close to rivers and places that can be productive for growing food. Through the last, um, you know, a little more than 100 years now, there was public land set aside, and there's a lot of public land. We enjoy a lot of uh, National Forest and Bureau of Land Management lands, federally managed lands, as well as state lands across the state. Um, but these tend to be places that you can't grow food and that you wouldn't want to live. In fact, a lot of, especially the BLM land, is kind of the leftovers following the homestead, homesteading um, during the, uh, the opening of the frontier and then eventually closing it. Homesteaders naturally went where the land was productive. And it's productive for people because we can grow food. It's productive for wildlife just the same. 
wildlife depends on private lands. It depends on these valley bottoms and well-watered areas to survive. Uh, that's abundantly visible here in the Wet Mountain Valley when we see these herds of elk and deer and antelope all or pronghorn all in the hay fields um, to the chagrin of our producers. But that's where they want to be. And so, uh, you know, the wildlife doesn't see these boundaries and they, they really need the private land. Uh, similarly, many of us move to the Wet Mountain Valley because of the scenic beauty. The fact that it's just simply gorgeous. And what we're looking at across the valley is private land. And those green valley floor uh, ranches are all private. And um, not only that, but these are productive and these are people's livelihoods as well as culture. And simply in the view, all that is inherent within it. So when, when I think of San Isabel as a small, small-time landowner, you know, just a few acres, the preservation of the viewscape it has to be right up there. Now, uh, to me, one of the measures of a successful organization within the Valley is the amount of money folks bring in during the Spirit Campaign. And San Isabel is commonly in the top two or three, as I recall. So that, that that's, that's certainly a vote of confidence. Uh, things have changed in the six years since you've been here. When you first got here, it was probably much more about conservation easements. Now you, you're looking more at trails. You have the Bluff Park that you mentioned earlier. Uh, so your your charge is getting more broad, more complicated. That's true. Not only uh, are we diversifying what we do, but the the work involved with simply maintaining our portfolio is now a very big job. Those 130 properties uh, need to be visited every year, and we really want to emphasize the relationships with those landowners so that we can be a supportive partner and not an adversary. Uh, but yes, we... With the ownership of the bluff, we can say we have a parks and trails program, and we're looking for ways to expand that here in Westcliff and in other uh, other areas within our service area. Um, and then we're also looking at expanding our our land-based services into what we're calling stewardship services, which is a very general term for uh, projects with private landowners that either help manage a forest for wildfire mitigation and, and forest health, for wildlife habitat, or for agricultural productivity when it can be helpful. So we're looking towards building that program, partly to, uh, you know, really to inc overall increase our service to landowners in line with sort of the, our goal of a healthy landscape, but also as a way to bring more relevance and vitality to the organization, to diversify mm -hmm. our revenue streams and try to keep uh, ourselves funded. You know, water that you've mentioned several times is an important topic all across the West, and this valley is no exception. Uh, San Isabel would seem particularly poised to become ever more involved. How do, how do you see that? Well, we'd like to be a resource to the community on water issues. We want to bring uh, this and all issues uh, in a, in a non-political, informed way. We're very careful to advocate for certain land uses, but it is our, it is our business at this point. Uh, we're concerned about the water issue, as many are. Uh, obviously, last year we've passed the Colorado Water Plan, and that gives some sort of broad direction to the whole state in terms of solving the water issues. Fundamentally, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, the state went through a, a planning process in the last several years based on grassroots input through what are called roundtables within each river basin and collected as much input from the ground up as possible. And the water plan then 
directs water managers and anybody interested to try to solve what is actually a water supply gap that we're looking at, where there simply isn't enough water appropriated and adjudicated for the uses that we will need over the next several decades in terms of providing for our growing population and cities. So that gap puts a lot of pressure on agriculture. And the reason is within the state, over 80% of water rights are dedicated to agricultural uses. As I've already mentioned here in the headwaters, we think water rights are tremendously important and we want to see them stay here. But because most of the water is adjudicated to that use, dedicated to agriculture, and certain groups see inefficiencies there, agricultural water tends to be the target for growing cities and municipalities through the process typically known as buy and dry, where right here in Westcliff, we've witnessed this with the H2O Ranch, Mm -hmm. where some of our front-range municipal neighbors have purchased that ranch outright in order to strip off the water and send it downstream for their use. And rightfully so for them. They have a very important challenge to face of providing water for their growing populations. What's unfortunate is that this process damages rural communities and damages the the mountain valleys that are really a lot of Coloradoans pride and joy, these these productive places. And once the water is stripped from the land, it's gone forever. There's, uh, it's economically infeasible to return water to a ranch once it's bought and dried up like that. So we're concerned about more of that coming. We'd love to get ahead of this challenge. We'd love to be a resource both for the municipal and industrial sources as well as landowners. Um, if it was possible to, to play sort of an intermediary role, and that sort of that might sound like unrealistic dream to folks who are in this business, but we believe the community doesn't want to see more dry up. And uh, so we'd like to, to help in that regard. Water is, uh, as you note, a very complex issue, but you have several members on your board who are hydrologists and in, in that uh, in that space. So that's that's uh, quite valuable. Hey, we're, uh, we're running short of time. On behalf of the community, the station here, thanks for all the work that uh, your group does to uh, preserve this valley that we've all come to uh, love. Thanks for coming by, and uh, don't be a stranger here. Thanks so much, Gary. Really appreciate it. We've been talking with Ben Lenth, Executive Director of San Isabel Land Protection Trust. We'll see you next time on Valley Views.